You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Heart Sounds for September 2018. Special because I'm recording this on-site at the TCT meeting in San Diego. I've found a rare quiet moment here in TCTMD's studio to ramble into a microphone for this podcast. It's been a whirlwind month for me and for many of you as well. The entire news team at TCTMD spent the first week of the month wrapping up our coverage at the ESC meeting. Caitlin Cox very kindly hosted the August edition of Heart Sounds and did an awesome job, while I myself stayed on the other side of the pond in order to hit the London Valves meeting mid-month. Then, after the world's fastest week back at home, I hopped on a plane again for TCT in San Diego. You're going to hear more about TCT in a moment, but before it gets too hectic here, let me tell you about a few other things that made waves in cardiology this month. Let's start with a few ESC leftovers that seem to strike a chord with readers. We've done a lot of stories on TCTMD about the use of filter devices during transcatheter aortic valve implantation, or TAVR. What we've heard time and again is that despite a lack of data showing that use of these filters leads to better neurological outcomes, Physicians working in this space all say that if it was they themselves undergoing TAVR, hell yes, they want something to catch any debris. Yael Maxwell covered a study that Julia Sieger of the University of Ulm in Germany presented at ESC. This was a very careful look at the histopathology and histomorphometry of the debris caught using the Sentinel filter device according to valve type. Seeger and colleagues found that while the type of debris did not differ between the three valves used, Sapien 3, Evolute R, and Lotus, the debris found when the Sapien balloon expandable device was used tended to be larger. The kicker, however, and this has been seen before, nearly 100% of cases led to some debris being caught by the Sentinel. Yael spoke with Howard Herman of Penn Heart and Vascular Center in Philly for his thoughts on the study. He believes it's premature, given the study's small size, to conclude that one valve type might be associated with less debris than another. The take-home for Herman is that almost all the filters caught some debris displaced during the TAVR procedures, and there is no good way of predicting when and in whom that debris could be a problem. What's more, using these devices in everyone is simply not an option at this time. Have a listen. Right now, we don't have a good way of predicting who is at more risk for stroke. And I think an approach that many of us would like would be to selectively use this and future devices for embolic protection in those patients who are most risk for stroke. Unfortunately, we don't have good predictors of that event. And so it tends to be a more all or none kind of phenomenon. And if it's an all, it's a an expensive proposition for a hospital like mine that does close to 600 tavers a year. It's a very expensive proposition. ESC is such a big and busy meeting, we simply can't do justice to all the news while we're there and typically end up taking a bunch of stories home. For better or for worse, our on-site coverage tends to be biased towards studies that will have an immediate impact on practice. The big picture stuff tends to be sidelined until we come up for air. One of the stories Todd Neal followed up on once he was back at the office was a Swedeheart analysis looking at in-hospital and one-year mortality following acute MI over a 20-year period in Sweden. 
As Tomas Jernberg told his ESC audience, from 1995 to 2010, mortality after AMI in Sweden fell substantially as use of evidence-based therapies increased. During that 15-year period, in-hospital mortality declined from 13% to 5%, while one-year mortality dropped from 25% to 15%. Over the last eight years of the study, however, from 2010 to 2018, no additional decreases in mortality were seen. Todd spoke to Martha Gulati of Banner University Medical Heart Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. These numbers, said Gulati, should be a reminder to doctors not to rest on their laurels. That's her phrase. Here's one idea from Gulati as to what could happen next. Pretty much universally, we are not very good at referring patients to cardiac rehabilitation. And everybody who has had a myocardial infarction, regardless of type, is eligible for cardiac rehabilitation. We've shown over and over again that people do uh, better if they get cardiac rehab. And so that's one place that all of us over the, all over the world could be more aggressive about making sure not only do we refer and enroll patients, but help them adhere to it and maybe making new strides in the future to making it accessible at home. Because, you know, right now cardiac rehab has traditionally been 36 visits over three months' time. So three visits a week for 12 weeks. That's a lot, and it's a lot of commitment and not depending on where you live geographically may not be as easy as we think. As you may recall, two large aspirin studies came out at ESC that really called into question the use of ASA in primary prevention. In the ARRIVE trial, which included patients at moderate risk for cardiovascular disease, low-dose daily aspirin failed to reduce the risk of cardiovascular events and was associated with an increased risk of GI bleeding. In the ASCEND trial, which tested aspirin for primary prevention in patients with diabetes, there was a reduction in major vascular events among aspirin-treated patients, but the benefit was offset by a significantly increased risk of major bleeding. A third study this month may really seal the coffin for aspirin in the primary prevention setting. Esprit, published across three papers mid-month in the New England Journal of Medicine, looked specifically at the use of low-dose aspirin in healthy adults, mostly age 70 and older. This trial of nearly 20,000 people found that over nearly five years of follow-up, aspirin failed to reduce the risk of fatal coronary heart disease, non-fatal MI, fatal or non-fatal stroke, or hospitalization for heart failure. When compared with placebo, however, aspirin was associated with a relative 38% increased risk of major hemorrhage and a 14% increased risk of all-cause mortality. TCTMD's Michael Reardon spoke with the SPRI lead investigator John McNeil of Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. He said that for healthy adults, aspirin's benefits have proved to be a beautiful theory slain by cynical facts. Mike also spoke with John Cleland of Imperial College London in the UK. Cleland has long raised the alarm bells about aspirin. He points out that for many years, aspirin really was a cornerstone therapy in primary prevention. That should change. Anybody who's perceived to be at increased risk, uh, any sort of family history, or indeed just uh, getting older and worried about their health, would be started on aspirin. And um, people thought that it was harmless and uh, you know, I don't think there's evidence of a great deal of harm, but uh, on the other hand, 
there is some harm and there's really no evidence of benefits. And also I think the greatest harm is potentially a false sense of security that people and people don't do things that might actually be useful, like taking a statin, because they're, they think, well, I'm taking the aspirin, why do I need to bother with a statin? I've heard all these bad stories about statin. Mm-hmm. And I haven't heard bad stories about aspirin, so I'll take the aspirin. And you know, yet we have uh, powerful evidence of reductions in death and disability with statin. TCTMD's Laura McEwen and Caitlin Cox have spent much of the last few months working behind the scenes on the TCT Daily. This is the print magazine published during the TCT meeting. If you attended TCT this year, I hope you've enjoyed their work. Laura managed to squeeze in some hard news reporting for TCTMD.com, however. One of these stories looked at yet another study addressing the gender gap in PCI outcomes. Don't tune out now because you've heard this one before. I think it's because you have heard this before that it's worth our attention. This latest analysis published in PLOS One this month looked at 10 years worth of data on 6.6 million US patients who underwent PCI during that period. The study, led by Jessica Potts and Alex Serker at Keele University in the UK, found that over the decades studied, women were 80% more likely than their male counterparts to experience bleeding complications during PCI and 20% more likely to die. These differences held up even after accounting for a higher burden of comorbidities in women. It's not just about recognizing that women are higher risk, said senior author Mamas Mamas, also of Keele University. It's about starting to think seriously about how to close those gaps. Laura spoke with Samir Panchali, who agreed that the persistent disparities are frustrating and warrant action. He had one idea as to where to start. Have a listen. On the whole, I mean, this is another addition to the pool of literature that shows that women are not doing as well as men and that there is a heterogeneous mix of reasons why that might be the case. Right. Some of it has to do with their comorbid profile and others are things we don't yet understand. I want to change gears now and talk about TCT. I managed to convince Ajay Kurtney to sit down with me on the last day of the meeting and talk about some of the highlights. Have a listen. All right, so I'm sitting here with Ajay Kurtney and it is the last day of the TCT meeting. Ajay, what were some of the highlights this year? I think the biggest is co-apt. Um, there was a lot of excitement for this trial. It, it was like the perfect setup. Um, there was a negative trial right before it, Mitra FR, FR a few weeks ago. Yeah, ESC. And so people didn't really know what was going to happen with the space. And then, bang, the trial gets presented. And you know, mortality reduction, every other endpoint seems to be reduced. Hospitalization. Um, so I, I think people were very excited about it as a whole. Well, let's just tell people what that was like, because I have only one other time been in a main arena at a major meeting where there's been spontaneous applause, I think. And that was the Ravel results way back at the beginning of drug eluting stents. So, you know, I had my cynics journalist brain on a little bit. I covered <laughs> Mitra FR and then I I knew the results already, but the audience reaction, I mean, there was an audible gasp, there was some woohoos, and then people burst into applause. Were you there? 
You know, Greg put me in some side session, oh, so no. I was not there. I was on my laptop. It was really funny. Actually, they, Antonio Colombo at one point said in the session, you've been kind of quiet. Uh, you know, do you have a comment on this bifurcation? I said, that's because I've been following the co-op results. So <laughs> I was excited. I think okay. everybody was excited by it. Um, you know, I think in, in our field, it's hard to make um, big, big advancements um, because so much of what we do is really good anyway. And so when you see a big advancement like that, um, it, it engenders a lot of um, excitement. Okay. I mean, you do have to put it in perspective. This is not for everybody. We have to. 10% of heart failure patients is what uh, Greg told me. Yes. I mean, ov the overall population of heart failure patients is huge. Mm -hmm. Not all of them have mitral regurgitation. And then among those, you have to think about do they actually fail medical therapy? Did you give them an adequate trial of medical therapy? Because this was a highly selected patient population, took six years to enroll, just 610 patients. So given, given that enthusiastic response in the main arena, given the New York Times coverage, every, all the news coverage I've seen has been pretty glowing, do you think there's a risk that too many interventional cardiologists will, will, will start performing this procedure? It will spin out way too fast? There's always a risk of that with anything in medicine, but the truth is, is um, we've learned these issues and mistakes before in other ways, and so I think that, I mean, I would expect everybody to be thoughtful in the way it's rolled out. I, I think that Greg, to his credit, um, and all, most people who are commenting on it have been saying these exact same things. So I, I, we have some historical knowledge here, and we don't want to make those mistakes. So okay. I think we have to be really cautious about mm -hmm. it and monitor it. What about the need for a tiebreaker, given that Mitre FR was so different from COAP before the FDA makes a decision on an indication? new indication here. Do you think we need to wait for reshape HF? I don't. I, I actually think that the FDA will act relatively quickly. Um, I personally would think that there are patients right now who, um, you know, you don't want them to die right, with which severe is a heart failure mm -hmm. while waiting for, you know, another trial and that sort of thing. Um, it, it'd be one thing if this was a small trial, poorly conducted, and disparate endpoint outcomes. I mean, even if you don't believe there's a mortality reduction, even if you think that's over-exuberant, the quality of life improvements, all of those things are so important to patients. Um, so I, I personally would say no. Okay. I don't want to overshadow other things that have happened at this meeting, though. Can you give us a quick take on some of the other highlights? Sure. I think the, the ultimate trial, um, the Cormic, a trial, um, trials like that really show that we have to go in the cath lab beyond just the angiogram. Ultimate was an IVIS-based versus angiography-based PCI strategy and, and done in China and showed that the IVIS-based strategy or an imaging-based strategy really improved outcomes for patients. Um, in By improving of, the quality with which the stents were implanted for those patients, right? That's correct. And, and then showing that clinical outcomes, repeat revascularization and target vessel failure for the most part were reduced by that strategy. So we have been doing a lot of efforts to try to train physicians to be able to do this because we've known this type of data. There are other randomized trials that have shown the same thing, smaller, yeah. um, but physicians just don't feel comfortable doing it. And Cormica was a trial the opposite don't have significant coronary disease, but you're investigating microvascular dysfunction, which we know occurs more frequently in women. And these people in this trial were really symptomatic. And when that trial was done, that strategy of investigating this further with acetylcholine um, and then titrating your therapy according to that, was associated with important improvements in quality of life for these patients who were at baseline suffering quite a bit from their uh, angina symptoms. Yeah, I talked to Tom Ford. He said that most physicians don't even realize that you should be using different types of anti-anginal drugs depending on the type of underlying disease. That's correct. And I, I think the other thing that happens is that, look, this is not everybody. This is a selected group of patients. Um, this is not anybody who comes in the cath lab and they're 
coronaries look fine. But if they're really quite symptomatic, um, what's novel in this study is that what was done to treat them was different and that was associated with an improvement in symptoms. So I would take that home in my practice. Interesting. Okay. Did you do anything fun here in San Diego? I did. I, I had like an exhilarating scooter ride um, okay. late last night with the CRF crew right. um, because they were, I was just thanking them for all the hard work that they did uh, during the course of this meeting and I had to get home and so I took a scooter, I, I took a scooter and it was amazing. That's it was literally amazing. I, okay. I was not safe because I didn't have a helmet on, but it was amazing. <laughs> right. And, End of uh, meeting behavior. Great. Okay. But, uh, and you got it for a run or two. I, I got understand. a couple runs in. San Diego was great. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. Me too. Okay. Well, thanks so much for telling me a bit about it today. Safe travels home. Thanks, Shelley. Thanks all of you listeners for tuning into the special edition of Heart Sounds. I hope you do check out all of the news coverage and other interesting slides and videos on TCTMD. There's still more news coming in for you to check out. And of course, a big thanks to my entire news team who's been putting all the uh, stories together this week. That's a wrap for the September edition of Heart Sounds. Over and out.